My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. I don't know about you, but I've thought more about the prospect of nuclear weapons being deployed in the past two weeks than I have since, I guess, since I was nine and the Soviet Union still existed. And the one thing that I keep coming back to is this. Are we more ready for that possibility now than we were back then? Be sure and remember what Bert the Turtle just did, friends, because every one of us must remember to do the same thing. That's what this film is all about. Duck and cover. Okay, sure. We have missile defenses. We have fighter jets. We have NORAD. We have, obviously, a very good neighbor to the south of us that has lots and lots of the best weaponry the world has ever seen. But still, are we ready for a nuclear attack? Just in case it happens. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not saying one is imminent. I'm not saying there's even reason to be nervous. It's just a question that keeps popping into my head, given everything. So I thought we should try to answer it. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. James Ferguson is the Deputy Director of the Center for Defense and Security Studies, and he is a professor in the Department of Political Studies at the University of Manitoba, and he goes by Jim. Hello, Jim. Morning. Or afternoon. (laughs) It doesn't matter which one. What matters to me is my first question, which is going to sound like a trolling question, but I swear it's not. How prepared is Canada for a nuclear war, just generally speaking? Uh, Basically not. (laughs) Great. In terms of what we would expect would be a strategic nuclear strike on North America, Canada possesses no what we call passive defense or civil defense capabilities or plans whatsoever. In terms of reliance for our security in this regard, we have Basically, there are two elements to it. Okay. One is reliance as a function of our geopolitical location and our close political relationship with the United States, a reliance on the American retaliatory deterrent. Basically, that uh, in the case of a potential nuclear consideration of a potential nuclear attack, our adversary would face the high probability that the United States would then retaliate. And that will deter them from actually launching. The second uh, element we have is potential reliance on the American ground-based mid-course phase ballistic missile defense system, which is located in Alaska. Uh, This has a limited capability, primarily designed to deal with emerging threats from proliferating states and to be specific, the growing or existing North Korean ICBM threat. There's a fairly limited number of interceptors. And of course, the question for Canada is, because there is no formal commitment from the United States, 
is the extent to which the United States would defend Canada or protect Canadian cities to intercept incoming warheads uh, relative to American cities, American high-value targets. And there are, there are reasons why we this is reasonable in the sense that a lot of our major cities are co-located very closely to American, major American cities to defend themselves. They really need to defend Canada because we would both be effective in, affected in nuclear strikes. So if you say, for example, look at that corridor from Windsor through to Montreal, closely located with Detroit, Cleveland, and then, of course, further south is New York and Washington, D.C., and in the West, that would primarily be Vancouver and its close uh, geographic position to Seattle. So the belief is, or the hope is, and it depends on a lot of different variables, that the U.S. would intercept missiles that end up being targeted against Canada. Can I ask a really dumb question here? What about NORAD? Well, NORAD, uh, of course, is the Aerospace Defense Command for North America, a binational command. But in terms of defense per se, uh, it only operates in the air domain. They call it aerospace control, but it's really only air defense, primarily against air breathing, whether they be long-range bombers or long-range cruise missiles launched by bombers or uh, submarines. Uh, in 2005, as the U.S. in the U.S. proceeded to develop and deploy its missile defense capability for North America, basically, Canada said no to participation. And there were reasons why we said no. And part of it was uh, the U.S. Didn't, would not agree to assign the mission to NORAD. It's a U.S. Northern Command mission. So NORAD plays an important role, but not in terms of the strategic nuclear threats to North America. We do, I should add, to make this clear, in the warning side, NORAD plays a role of what's known as integrated attack assessment and target identification. And basically, that's the ballistic missile early warning. So if missiles are launched against North America's strategic long-range missiles, American ballistic missile early warning network capabilities feed their data into NORAD, and NORAD then assesses and informs the National Command Authority whether North America is under attack. But once that's done, that's it for it. So you mentioned that we chose not to participate in a 2005 project. When was the last time Canada upgraded our defense systems, maybe not necessarily just for the possibility of a nuclear attack, but for but for any kind of aerial attack or missile-based attack? Well, I guess you could answer this two ways. One in the warning side was the upgrade or the modernization program, which created the North Warning System. Uh, this was to replace uh, the aged and obsolete three radar lines, which were built in the 1950s. For the defense of North America, and was partially driven not only by the obsolescence of particularly the distant early warning line, that was the line sort of that the North Warning System, which cuts across the northern part of the Canadian Arctic and down Labrador, mm -hmm. partially because of its obsolescence, but also because of the new nature of the threat. So before then, the primary nature of the air threat was basically Soviet Union bombers flying over Canadian, the Canadian Arctic down south to drop their bombs and Canadian and American cities, military bases, transportation centers, etc. And this had now changed to uh, intercepting or dealing with cruise missiles, air-launched cruise missiles primarily, that would be launched in the high Arctic against these targets. And the North Warning System was, was built to be able to identify these bombers so we could send interceptors to meet them before they launched their cruise missiles. Uh, and that was the last real modernization. 
And of course, part of that was also when we acquired the CF-18 fighter uh, back in the 1980s uh, as the frontline interceptor for air defense. Other than that, we really haven't done much at all. So I know this is like a broken record, but this is just a case, another case, I should say, because it's not uncommon of us relying on America to keep us safe. And how much of our defense from this stuff is actually independent? It sounds like next to none. Well, as a function of the, the binational command and the NORAD structure, both Canada and the United States commits or dedicates or allocates capabilities to NORAD command. They basically give them over on an annual basis. So they come under NORAD command. So Canada allocates or dedicates CF-18 fighters to the NORAD command, a small number, or it's hard to know exactly what number we have dedicated right now. So in terms of aerospace warning, all that information, if uh, fighters today, because of Russian bomber training missions, which approach Canadian and the American defense identification zone in the Arctic, are sent up to meet them, to escort them, to watch them, and then they turn around. Certainly, the Americans dedicate more assets than we do, because they're simply much larger. But our contribution is, is significant to the United States as well. So it's dominated by the U.S. commitment, but we are committing something to it, to our own defense, which is really the defense of North America. Following up on that then, you know, you mentioned uh, a number of Canadian cities that are kind of strategically placed so that uh, America would likely jump to protect them, if if even, even if only to protect their own cities. So in that case then, where is Canada vulnerable? What are the places where we don't have that support guaranteed from the U.S. and would be, you know, targets that that people would think about attacking? Well, basically, they what we, we call high value targets. Right. So you think about the capital city, our major cities, which co-locate, of course, with our major industries. Then transportation centers, for example, in the Cold War, Winnipeg would be considered a secondary target by the Soviet Union because we're a transportation hub, our rail lines, for example. Our military bases uh, on each coast, the naval bases, would potentially be a target as well, as well as all our military bases. That's not really the issue. The issue for Canada and the United States, because the United States has lagged behind like we have in terms of North American defense and what is now known as NORAD and North American defense modernization, is the new threat, threat environments change. And let me give you two examples. One, the cruise missile threat to North America has been manifested now by longer and longer range cruise missiles, uh, which means that Soviet or, pardon me, Russian bombers or whomever in the future flying over the Arctic to targets do not need to come close to Canada, Canadian territory, to launch their cruise missiles. They can now launch them far away in the mid Arctic Ocean or even closer to the Russian side. And this goes for submarine launch cruise missiles as well. We have no ability, real ability, to reach out with our radar lines, the North Warning System, to identify these. We have very little, if any, ability to be able to, to identify cruise missiles and track them in flight uh, because they have a very small crosshair and ground-based radars have a very difficult time finding cruise missiles because they're small. Mm -hmm. We have a limited capability, as the United States does, as a function of our fighters having what's known as a look-down capability. So their radars can look down where you can find them. But cruise missiles 
maneuver at very low altitudes. They use terrain mapping systems to fly in different patterns towards targets in the south. So that's one big vulnerability. We don't have a def- really don't have a defense against that right now. We can't see them. We have problems trying to kill them. The second new element is the development of what is known as hypersonic vehicles. These fly at extremely high altitudes, lower, much lower than a ballistic missile will, roughly between 20 to 100 kilometers above the Earth in what's known as suborbital space. Hmm. They can maneuver like a cruise missile at the low altitudes, but they fly much higher and faster, uh, roughly anywhere up to about 25,000 kilometers an hour. This is a challenge because we don't have the existing radar systems to be able to track, identify them, track them, uh, and then vector interceptors. And we really don't have existing defense capabilities to be able to deal with these high-speed hypersonic vehicles uh, during flight. And they can maneuver and they can cover a large range. It's hard to know where their target's going to be. So this is another major vulnerability that has to be filled. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. Given the last few weeks and the past few decades, I guess, of not updating these systems, when you look at Putin's not-so-veiled threats to use nuclear weapons if cornered, and when you think about plausible scenarios, you know, I'm not trying to be alarmist here. I'm trying to ask the questions because we've gotten a number of questions about this. What do you picture? You are right. Uh, the recent nuclear threats, which is really a political message uh, to remind the United States, Canada, the West, uh, not to intervene militarily in this conflict because it could and will escalate. So they threaten to potentially a nuclear exchange. Russian strategic doctrine is very clear that it will use nuclear weapons uh, under certain circumstances, were vital threats to the national security and survival of Russia. Right. We're informed of this, and really it's a deterrent to ensure that we don't intervene in what the Russians will call their sphere of influence, and if necessary, then be able to uh, deny potentially our ability to do so, because you can threaten embarkation points in North America, American cities, and it's a really attempt to, to affect our policy making, to deter us by threatening us. Now, you get into a lot of complicated issues about nuclear deterrence, which people have all forgotten about since the end of the Cold War. Right. But these are all now coming back into play. It's really for North America, for North American decision makers, and this would be Washington, not us, but yeah. partially us, is in this type of relationship under these conditions, how does this threat, and if you add in long-range cruise missiles, which can be conventional or nuclear uh, capable, and the strategic forces, how then does it, uh, it affect our willingness to act overseas? 
And that's the core problem right now. Did you ever think, uh, given your career studying NORAD and being immersed in this stuff, did you ever think you'd be having conversations like this? Like, how ready are we for a nuclear attack again? <laughs> that's a really interesting question. In a way, I, you know, I have thought about it because uh, since the end of the Cold War, where all these issues fell off the table, and, and again, one of the reasons why no little investment has been made in modernizing NORAD because of the nature of the world since the end of the Cold War, I've always thought that this will come back. Eventually, this is going to come back. And now it's back. And uh, sometimes I wonder if, certainly in the, at the public level, but even with high-level government, that they really have the ability to get their heads around this again and the different world we live in. So it's become an increasingly important issue. NORAD, North American Defense Modernization, is a priority. Both Canadian and the American governments have recognized this in a variety of different statements, etc. cetera. Uh, but the problem right now is uh, there's no fun funding attached to this. There's no money yet. Hmm. And we're waiting to see how quickly... And the war in the Russian Ukraine and the return of this strategic issue, these strategic issues, may be the motivator for the governments, both governments, to move a little faster than they've been moving right now. Well, that was my next question is, you know, what would it take to get this done? And what kind of timeline are we talking about? You mentioned we're waiting for the new fighter jets. Canada is not exactly known for uh, speedy military procurement and upgrades. Yes, but to be fair. No country is good with the speed of procurement and acquisitions. It's always a relatively slow process for a variety of reasons about technology, uh, about the, the costs of all this. So we need to be reasonably fair. We might be among the worst at it, but we're not alone. So that's one thing you, I think you have to keep in mind. Okay. The other thing to keep in mind is, and this is where the problem, and I'll give you an example, uh, the North Warning System radars, which are a series of short-range and long-range radars, mostly unmanned, but there's a few manned stations, are obsolete. They're obsolete because they're simply old and need to be replaced, and they're obsolete because they can't deal with the new threat environment. The last thing I understand is the the objective, they're supposed, they need to be replaced, let me put it this way, they need to be replaced roughly by 2025. They are now, investment is now underway to extend their life to 2035, which gives you an idea what the target date is. Okay. Well, that's a long way off, and that's a lot of years of vulnerability, which will have political impact on a variety of strategic and other questions. The war, hopefully, in my view, will start to speed this up. Now, part of the problem is the complicated requirements for a new warning system to deal with the new threat environment. And potentially other new air defense or aerospace defense capabilities beyond jet fighters, because you might need ground-based defenses. Uh, issues about Canadian potential future Canadian participation in the American Ballistic Missile Defense Program, as this all blurs together. There's a lot of big technology questions, architecture questions that have to be figured out. To be fair, I guess, to the governments, uh, that's the process they're in right now, I think trying to put together the architecture before they move to procurement uh, and relative to being able to identify the technologies that are needed and are available. So that makes it a long process, and it should, because we, the Canadian U.S. has been looking at this for almost a decade now they started this. 
I mean, I would hope that this functioned as a wake-up call. The last question I will ask you, just because you have experience in the defense side of things and also on the political side of things, and I'm not asking you to predict anything, you know, keeping in mind that this is a very fluid situation, and I'm certainly not asking you to panic anybody, but just on a scale of 1 to 10, how worried are you about nuclear escalation from this? If 1 means not worried at all and 10 means very worried, I probably would be a 2. That's good. Think think. The Russian, because when Putin, uh, when he announced to the world that he put his forces on high alert. Now, when you put strategic nuclear forces and your other nuclear forces on high high alert, certain things are going to happen. Uh, You're going to be able, through, uh, for for example, space based surveillance capabilities, to see evidence of actually going to high alert. So, for example, you would expect to see. ballistic missile submarines that are at port start to surge out into open water. You would see potentially uh, mobile ICBM capabilities start to move out of their their, uh, garages, if you will, and start to move into launch points in the field. There will be a lot of indicators that this is really serious. Okay. We haven't seen any of those. Uh, So to me, this is a political message for two reasons. To remind the West, don't intervene because this is what might happen to you. The second is to send a message to Western public opinion to try to ignite, if you will, the anti-nuclear movement to bring pressure on the governments in terms of the politics related to the Russo-Ukrainian war. So you put those together. And by the way, if you go on high alert, it's going to cost you a lot of money. Hmm. But we haven't seen, as far as I can discern from the material I have access to, and of course, I don't have access to classified intelligence, uh, there's any indication that the posture of Russian strategic nuclear forces or their nuclear forces at large have really changed at all. Jim, thank you so much for this. And thank you in particular for that last reassuring answer. My pleasure. Dr. James Ferguson of the Center for Defense and Security Studies and the University of Manitoba. That was the big story. Another cheerful episode in the books. You can find us at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can talk to us by email anytime, thebigstorypodcast, all one word, at rci.rogers.com. As I've mentioned, we love topic suggestions. This was actually a topic suggestion from a listener and from the terrifying depths of my subconscious. You can find this podcast, as you know, in any podcast player you prefer, and by asking your smart speaker to play The Big Story Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow, on Friday. I hope it's happier. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.